If someone were to compile a list of the most significant events in the history of the world, it would be hard not to include the conversion of the Apostle Paul. Even if the person putting together the list wasn't a Christian, it's hard to deny the impact that the Apostle Paul has had on the world as the the apostle to the Gentiles, as the one who first and foremost brought the the good news about Jesus uh, beyond the Jewish people, and also as the author of most of the books of the New Testament. And so this morning we're coming to look at an event with massive historical significance But when we open God's word, we're never just looking at events which happened in the past, are we? And particularly when it comes to thinking about a conversion. While it's true that there are aspects of what happened to Paul here that are unique and that we won't experience unless we too are converted, we will never make it to the place where Paul is this morning. And where's Paul this morning? Well, he is in heaven with his Saviour. And if we want to go there, then we need to be converted as well. And on the other hand, if we have been converted, we have a reminder today that something absolutely amazing has happened to us. Something that totally transforms our relationship to God, to the church and to the world. It's not just that we've, we've, we've taken up coming to church. It's not just that we, that we have uh, taken on some extra beliefs. But that as Paul will go on to say that we are new creations. So as we look at this passage we're going to see something immeasurably significant that happened to Paul. And we're going to see something immeasurably significant that must happen to us if we are not to be miserable for all eternity. And in it all, we do want to keep the focus on the God who saves and on the risen Lord Jesus who had told his disciples that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth and who now saves and commissions Saul as his chosen instrument to carry his name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And in trying to sum up this chapter, particularly in a way that will help the girls and boys to understand what's going on here, I want to do so in just a few words. Uh, So, uh, boys and girls, here's what this chapter we're looking at today is about. Uh, and maybe I'll even ask you after church because I, I'm sure you'll be able to remember this. This chapter is about a wolf that becomes a sheep. The chapter is about a wolf that becomes a sheep. So if you want to draw a picture when I'm speaking today or, or later on, you could draw a wolf on one side and a sheep on the other or, or a wolf at the top and a sheep below. And that's our first point this morning. A wolf becomes a sheep. Well, what do do I mean when I say that that a wolf becomes a a sheep? Uh, Some of the boys and girls maybe looked at me a bit strangely. How can a wolf become a sheep? 
Well, what I mean is that Saul the wolf becomes Paul the sheep. In other words, a man who wanted to hunt down and hurt Christians, a man who wanted to divide, to bite and devour Jesus' sheep, becomes a sheep himself. He becomes one of Jesus' people. And in fact, boys and girls, as I've told you before, the very reason that there are sheep in the world is to show us what we are like and to show us how much we need Jesus as our shepherd. Without Jesus, we are like lost sheep wandering off and getting, getting hurt. And I think we could probably say the same about wolves, that God made them because he planned one day to show, to show us what people who try and hurt Christians and the church are like. So the, the amazing thing this chapter tells us is that a wolf can become a sheep. Someone who once tried to hurt God's people can become one of God's people. So why do I call Paul a, a wolf? Well, if you look back to the start of the previous chapter for a moment, chapter 8 and verse 3, you'll see it describes Saul as ravaging the church. Uh, Saul, his, his Hebrew name, Paul, Paul, his Greek name. Uh, the same word is used in Psalm 80, that word ravaging, uh, to describe a wild animal ravaging God's vineyard. So it's animal language that is being used of Saul. Uh, why a wolf in particularly? In particular, well, this is all a fulfillment of Jacob's prophecy back in Genesis 49. Uh, it's a chapter we'll get to in our evening services in a few weeks, God willing. Uh, but back in Genesis 49, Jacob uh, prophecies about all the tribes of Israel. Do you remember which tribe Paul is, is from? Uh, well, he tells us in Romans 11 that he's of the tribe of Benjamin. And what had Jacob prophesied about Benjamin? Genesis 49, 27. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. And just as King Saul in the Old Testament had been of the tribe of Benjamin and had tried to hunt down and kill David, who was God's chosen king, so here the New Testament Saul wants to hunt down and kill the followers of Jesus, who is God's chosen king. And in fact, in persecuting Jesus' followers, Saul is persecuting Jesus too. As we see in verse 5 when the Lord says to him, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So we can call Saul a wolf because the language used of him is animal-like. Uh, because he's the ultimate fulfillment of Jacob's prophecy that Benjamin would be a ravening wolf. One who, who it turned out would devour not the enemies of God's people but God's true people uh, and a wolf with, with its big teeth and uh, with its sharp fangs is a very appropriate description for Saul because of the violence with which he went after Christians 
So, so boys and girls, if you're drawing a wolf, make sure and give it some big teeth. Uh, what Saul did, it, it went beyond legal persecution and it went into the realm of brutality. The first verse of this chapter tells us that he was breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He tells us in Galatians 1 that he tried to, that he persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. He'll tell us that in Acts 22 how he persecuted this way to the death. And this wolf is now on the way to Damascus, which is 135 miles north of Jerusalem. Remember how the, the Christians had just been scattered after, after Stephen's martyrdom. And some of them had ended up in Damascus. Though Paul doesn't even know this for sure, he, he just suspects it. Uh, and so he goes to the high priest, he asks for permission to go and extradite any Christians that he finds there and bring them back to Jerusalem. He doesn't even know if there's a single Christian in Damascus, but such is his rage that he will go on this huge journey just in case he might find some. He'll be so determined to get there that, that when it comes to noon, in the heat of the day, he won't rest, but he'll keep going. And yet the wolf who heads to Damascus in order to hunt down the sheep there will be completely transformed before he gets there. Rather than dragging off the Christians in Damascus, he will end up worshipping and fellowshipping with the very people he planned to arrest. The wolf will become a sheep. And so what happens to bring about this dramatic transformation? Well, quite simply, Saul meets the risen Lord Jesus. All this happens, as he tells us in Acts 22, at noon. So it's the middle of the day, but suddenly a light from heaven shines all around him. And that's maybe something we read, but have you ever even tried to imagine a light that is brighter than the sun? Next time you're out in the sunshine, uh, we are seeing a bit of the sun these days. Uh, try and think what it would be like to experience something even brighter than that. Because Paul did. And it is a light far brighter than the midday sun because it comes from the Lord Jesus. It's not just a bright light that, that accompanies the voice, but it comes from Jesus himself. Remember how John tells us in Revelation chapter 1 that Jesus' face was like the sun shining in full strength. And that's where this light comes from. It comes from the face of Jesus Christ. The rest of the chapter makes it clear that Paul saw not just a light, but he saw Jesus so in verse 17, Ananias says to him, we read it, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road. Or in verse 27, we'll get to next week, Barnabas tells the apostles how on the road Paul had seen the Lord. Paul himself writing about Jesus' resurrection appearances in 1 Corinthians 15 says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared 
also to me. People perhaps mock you for having seen the light. Or they they talk about someone else who has seen the light. But if we've seen Jesus then we have seen the light. Uh, The light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And if we want others to see the light, if we want them to start thinking clearly and see everything else in its proper place, then we must show them Christ, just like Philip did with the Ethiopian eunuch. So Paul sees a light, he sees Jesus himself, and he hears a voice speaking to him. And as all this happens, he's on the ground, verse 4 tells us that. Which as someone has said is a sign that he has been overwhelmed and overcome by one greater than he. And as he rises from the ground everything is black. He can't see anything. In chapter 13 a magician called Elymas will be struck with blindness for opposing the work of God. And I think we're meant to see Paul's blindness as a sign of God's judgment too. It's not just from seeing the light. Uh, we're, we're told elsewhere that those who are, who are with Paul, they, they, they see the light, but they're not blinded. But as Paul would have known very well, in the Old Testament, blindness was sometimes a covenant curse. God had warned his people that if they were disobedient, the Lord will strike you with blindness and you shall group at noonday as a blind group in darkness and you shall not prosper in your ways. And I was actually thinking about that this week uh, with uh, the man born blind in John's gospel and when, when people asked Jesus, uh, who sinned, was it this man or his parents that he was born blind? Is that perhaps what they are thinking about? Is, is they, are they assuming uh, that, that in every case blindness is a covenant curse? And obviously it's not that. Jesus tells them it's not that. But blindness itself is, is something that God had said that, that he would do uh, as, as a punishment at times. And exactly that happens to Paul here. He's left grouping in blindness at noonday. The one who thought that he would be confidently entering Damascus in order to carry off Christians instead has to be led by the hand into the city. And with every step that he took he would have been in no doubt what that blindness meant. And for three days he remained in darkness at least physically and he neither ate or drank. Here is a man who is absolutely overwhelmed and overcome. Not just by the outward manifestations of seeing the light and hearing the voice. But by what he's realised. And what has he realised? Well he's realised that the Jesus he thought was a fraud was actually God. The Jesus he thought was a fraud was actually God. And in fact, far from serving God by persecuting Christians as he thought he was doing, he was actually opposing God. And Paul comes to see himself, not as the righteous man he thought he was, but as the chief of sinners. Uh, 
So what's he doing for those three days? As he sits without food or drink. Well, we know that he's praying. That's what the Lord tells Ananias in verse 11. For behold, he is praying. Perhaps he's doing other things as well. Maybe thinking through the the Old Testament, which he would have known by heart and and suddenly seeing how, how, how it all pointed to Jesus. But what we know for sure is that he's praying. Uh, now as a, as a Pharisee, as a very religious Jew, Paul would have prayed often. But now he's really praying. Now he's coming to God as a sinner in need of a saviour. And that in itself is a sign of his conversion. Just like that first cry of a baby reassures the new parents that everything is okay, so prayer is a sign of life. I've never had to tell a new Christian that you should maybe think about praying. Perhaps a week before they didn't believe in God, they they thought prayer was totally pointless, but when someone is converted, they start to pray. And so if you struggle with assurance, Take that as an encouragement. Once you you perhaps never thought about praying unless it was an absolute emergency. But something has changed in your life because now you talk to God every day. And that in itself is a sign of new life. So Paul has been changed. One of the evidences of that is that he's praying. What's he praying for? Well, no doubt he is praying for forgiveness. Perhaps even wondering if there is any way back for him, if forgiveness is even an option. His whole world has been turned upside down. Everything he thought he knew about Jesus and about serving God was wrong. And no doubt he wondered if the judgment that he was experiencing would be final. But God sends Ananias to restore his sight and to tell him what he's to do. And to tell him that amazingly, this wolf had not only become a sheep, but would become a shepherd. Uh, And that's what we'll be thinking about next week, boys and girls. That the wolf who, who became a sheep would then become a shepherd. The one who hunted down Christ's sheep was going to become a shepherd of the sheep. Perhaps you wonder, well, how is that possible? This man has been so wicked. He's been hunting down Christians like the Gestapo hunting down Jews. Uh, One of the the, the children's programs we we have at home, it pictures Saul going around, going going into every house looking for for Christians to, to, to drag off. How can God just overlook what he's done? Well, of course, God doesn't just overlook it. But rather, there was another man. Another man who had experienced darkness at noonday in Paul's place. Jesus on the cross. Remember how on the cross there was darkness from the sixth hour until the ninth hour. From noon until three in the afternoon. The curses due to fall on Saul. That the, the darkness pictured They actually fell on Jesus. As Paul would later write to the Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 
And because of that, because of what Jesus did, because Jesus took the curses Paul deserved, the wolf could become a sheep and then a shepherd. So we're going to look at that second part of the story next Lord's Day, God willing. But for the rest of our time this morning, we want to think about Paul's conversion and how it relates to our conversions. So secondly this morning, Paul's conversion and you. Paul's conversion and you. In many ways, Paul's conversion is unique. And it is important to remember that you do have to be converted to be a Christian. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Becoming a member of a church doesn't make you a Christian. You must be converted. But you don't have to go through a Damascus Road type experience. For the rest of his life, Paul would have been able to tell you what date he became a Christian on. But I can tell you what date I became a Christian on. And many Christians are in a similar position. And not just those who were brought up in Christian homes. Maybe you started coming to church, you felt drawn to come. But when you started coming, you weren't a Christian. Jesus may have been a historical person to you, but he wasn't your saviour. But now he is. When did that happen? Well, maybe you can't quite put your finger on it. But that's okay, because the important thing isn't being able to remember when you took your first breath. The important thing is that you're breathing now. Are you breathing now? That's the important thing. So Paul's conversion, it isn't meant to be a template for how everyone will meet Jesus. But there are still certain things that are true of Paul's conversion that will be true of ours if we've been truly converted. Because we might all not meet Jesus the way Paul does. In fact, we probably won't. But we all need to meet Jesus. So things that, that are true of any conversion, we're going to look at three of them uh, briefly here. Any conversion is a work of God. If you told Paul as he left Jerusalem in order to persecute Christians that before he reached Damascus he would be a Christian himself, he would have laughed in your face. But what happened? God intervened. As Jonah tells us, salvation is of the Lord. It wasn't that Saul found God, but that God found Saul. Paul will say in Philippians 3.12, Christ Jesus made me his own. And that is a strong phrase which could be translated as grasped or seized. In other words, the Paul who came to Damascus to arrest Christians was himself arrested by Christ. He came to arrest Christians but he himself was arrested by Christ. And so when Paul goes on to write in his letters about God's sovereign choice and about his electing some to eternal life, he's writing about something that he had experienced, something that can be explained in no other way. Paul had once been going hard in one direction, but then the Lord Jesus had came, he called him by name, he'd stopped him in his tracks and everything changed. Look at him calling by name in verse 9. Saul, Saul. There are a number of occasions in the Bible when God calls someone 
by name and repeats it twice and they're always significant. God does the same to Abraham, Jacob, as we'll look at tonight actually, Moses, Samuel, Martha and Simon Peter. But even more basically than the fact that that the Lord Jesus calls him by name or, or even more, more basically than, than the fact that it's repeated twice, uh, we have a reminder here that, that God knows every one of us by name. Even if we're the ones who think we're seeking him like Zacchaeus thought he was doing when he climbed the tree, Jesus is actually the one who looks at us, calls us by name and tells us that he has a prior appointment with us. So our conversion, it must be like Saul's in that it's a work of God, not a work of man. Yes, we must respond to the gospel call by repentance and faith, but even those things are the gift of God. So any true conversion will be like Saul's in that it's a work of God. Even for those who think that they have chosen God, uh, wonderfully it's because he has first chosen them. Because to become a Christian is to become nothing less than a new creation, as Paul himself would later say. And only God can create. To be a Christian is to become a new creation and only God can create. Secondly then, becoming a, a, a true conversion involves seeing Jesus as he really is. True conversion involves seeing Jesus as he really is. When Paul sees a light and hears a voice, he knows that God is speaking to him. But who is this God? That's Paul's question in verse 5. Who are you, Lord? Perhaps he's suspecting the answer as he says that, but still fighting against it. And the answer is devastating. I am Jesus I am the great name for God in the Old Testament, but now joined with Jesus, who Paul thought was nothing but a fraudster, who who Paul believed had been a criminal, who had been rightly executed for that and was now dead. And yet it turns out he's really alive. The one who who Paul thought was cursed was actually the truly blessed one. And if you are saved this morning, didn't your conversion involve coming to see Jesus as he really was? Maybe you've never believed anything else. Your your parents told you that Jesus was God's son, our saviour, and you believed in him. And that is seeing Jesus as he really is. You were told who Jesus really was and you believed it. You can't remember believing anything else. But maybe you once thought of Jesus simply as a good teacher, as someone whose teachings you wanted to try and emulate, but not as the risen Lord of glory who calls you by name. The true conversion involves seeing Jesus as he really is. Of course, I don't mean physically. Yes, that was true of Paul. It it had to be for him to become an apostle. He had to be an, an eyewitness of his majesty, as Peter puts it. So where do we see Jesus? Well, we see him in his word. A true conversion involves seeing Jesus as he really is. Some of you this morning, you you may think you know who Jesus is, but if you're not converted, you haven't yet seen him for who he really is. The final thing that true conversion involves is coming face to face with our sin. Coming face to face with our own sin. 
Those three words, I am Jesus, in themselves would have been enough to leave Saul overwhelmed for days. But they're followed by words which only make it worse for him. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Those words spell out Paul's sin. Paul would later write about the rulers of this age having crucified the Lord of glory. Well, here he is persecuting the Lord of glory, persecuting not just Jesus' followers, but Jesus himself. Because if you persecute the body, you're persecuting the head. What Paul thought was good was actually evil. And have you come face to face with that this morning? That even your best deeds done as a non-Christian, done without the glory of God as their goal, are wicked. Never mind, never mind the things that you do that are wrong in and of themselves. True conversion is a work of God. It involves seeing Jesus as he really is and it involves coming face to face with our sin. And if we want to see people around us saved, we need to be praying these same three things. That God would intervene in their lives. That they would see Jesus as he really is. And that they would come face to face with their sin. So three things very practically that you can pray as you pray for uh, the, the unbelievers in your life this week that you pray for anyway. And the way that God will do those things probably won't involve a blinding light and a voice from heaven. But it may involve sending us to them. Every non-Christian you will encounter this week needs God to intervene in their lives. They need to see Jesus as he really is. And they need to come face to face with their sin. And just as we draw things to a close this morning. I think it's worth highlighting that Paul's conversion wasn't quite as out of the blue as we might assume. Some of you have heard the gospel, read the Bible and been converted within a matter of days. And up until that point, the idea of becoming a, a Christian hadn't really crossed your mind. And yet later on, you've been able to look back and see how God had been preparing you for that. And it's the same with Paul. There's actually an extra bit of verse 5 in some Bibles where the Lord Jesus says to Paul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now those are words, uh, don't, don't panic, they're in all our Bibles in Acts 26 verse 14. Uh, they're not in any known Greek manuscript of chapter 9, so uh, they're not part of the passage we're looking at today. But, but they are most certainly words that Paul heard from the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. Uh, and he'll tell us that himself later on. Uh, we've already seen how Paul uh, doesn't give us all the information here in chapter 9. It's only uh, later passages that we learn, for example, what time of day it was. And so we learn from chapter 26 that Jesus said to him on the road to Damascus, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Uh, that's a line that, that Johnny Cash quotes in his song, The Man Comes Around. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. It's a phrase which was used of an animal trying to kick out against the sharp stick being used to guide it. And the important thing is that it tells us that Paul has been trying to resist God, even though he hasn't been fully aware that he's been doing it. Perhaps it was the death of Stephen that first unsettled Paul. 
and Paul just can't get Stephen's shining face out of his mind. Perhaps it was the examples of unnamed Christians. Uh, Paul tells us in Acts 26 that he punished them often and tried to make them blaspheme. He tried to make them deny Christ, but they wouldn't. And the witness of those Christians under threat of death unsettled Paul. And it is likely that the the fanaticism of his persecution was an attempt to drown it out. The face of Stephen, those Christians who wouldn't blaspheme Jesus. But we also know that Paul was feeling the conviction of sin. He tells us in Romans 7 that before he became a Christian, he became convicted of the sin of covetousness, of breaking the 10th commandment. He says that the very commandment that promised life proved death to him. And so he's been kicking against the goads of conscience. And maybe as we close, that is someone here today. You know that the Christians around you have something that you don't have. And you can also feel the goads of conscience. But all it does is make you redouble your efforts at trying to make your own way to heaven. All it does is make you even more determined not to listen to what's being preached. But it is hard. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And so the Lord Jesus is saying to you today, just stop it. Stop doing what is so hard and self-destructive. Stop trying to fight against knowledge and conscience to go your own way. Stop resisting Jesus and submit to him. And let yourself be overwhelmed and overcome by the one who is far greater than you. And if you do that, then like Paul, you will find that God has far greater plans for you than you have for yourself. And as we'll see next time, you will have a transformed relationship, not just with God, but with the church and with the world. Amen. Well, let's now respond to God's word by singing a psalm which pictures Paul's rage against the church at Psalm 80. Psalm 80 will sing verses 4 to the end on page number 181, page 181, Psalm 80 at verse 4. And in the middle of verse 4 we're told that the boar out of the forest lays at waste. It's the same word used for Saul ravaging the church. But glory to God, he intervened. And Paul saw the light of the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. The true son of man who we sing about here in Psalm 80. Who experienced those covenant curses in Paul's place and in ours. So Psalm 84 to the end will stand and sing praise.